Romans 3:21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Thank you, Mark. It's always a great day to be able to worship God and realize how many good people God has. And so it's always a joy to be among you and and just be able to sing praises to God and just hear so many good things going on. We were talking last week about going from spectator to disciple. There's a lot of process that is involved with Christianity. It's not all, okay, you start here, you did this, now you're finished. But there's a lot more development to it. And so... As you think about that, they went from being the crowd now to being the chosen, the twelve, the the Christian, the disciple. And so this week we want to talk a little bit more about this progression that goes on as well. And some of the things that happen there. When you realize how Jesus first started, he stood up for his first sermon and said, you need to repent. Well, that seems kind of bold, doesn't it? Does he even know those people? Did he know something about them where they needed to repent? But actually, we can do the same thing in here, can't we? I can say you need to repent. Because there isn't any of us who have it all together. And there isn't any of us who have say, well, you know what? I didn't even do one single sin this week. It was a good week. I can't remember any of the week before. I can't remember the last time I sinned. No, that's really not the case. It's more that we can remember way too often all the things that we've done that are sins. You know, the times when we were upset, we said things we shouldn't, we didn't want to, but somehow it just jumped out of your mouth. I don't know if you guys have times like that, but there are those times when it just seems to happen. And you did things or you said things or you thought things or... And the list gets to be endless trying to think of all those. And so Jesus comes saying the answer to all of this is very simple. You just need to repent. And he makes that assumption that all of us need that. We don't get to see God's holiness with our sin. And so repentance is absolutely important and necessary. And when we do things wrong, it doesn't just go away. It's nice to think, well, if I just ignore it, it'll go away. And sometimes we even do that with people, right? We have great friends for a little while until something happens. Either they do something or we do something and then somebody's mad. Usually both of us are mad at each other. And, well, the answer is I need new friends. And so we move to the next one and the next one and the next one. We never really learned what repentance means or what 
this relationship can be built and that the simple I'm sorry and I didn't want to do that, mean to do that, I don't think of you like that, I don't want to do anything wrong toward you and the relationship gets repaired. And there's some people who have had friends for a lifetime. Why do you keep friends for a lifetime? Well, it's because you know what repentance is about. And you know how to ask for forgiveness. And you know how to say those things that will allow this to happen. And so as we talk about going from repentance to redemption, the the passage that was read to us just a minute ago by Mark, is one of those passages, we've got three passages we're going to look at that talk about God's side of this and the, the grace and the things that Jesus is doing. And then we want to talk about our side and the things that happen there. So that's kind of the outline what we're doing. He talks here about the righteousness of God, how that's been shown, not because of law, but it's shown because we did, because of Jesus. We tend to think, well, I did right because no one caught me. I did right because there's no law against it. What if we're not counting whether there's a law against it or whether we got caught, but are you a good person? Did everything you do say, I am the person that God would want me to be today? And that's kind of a different standard, isn't it? He talks here about faith in Jesus is the bottom line, that we believe in him, that we believe Jesus could pay the price for our sin, that he could come to this earth and die on a cross and that he is the one that is able to make good things happen here and that people can actually be good. That's something that gets harder and harder to believe as we go year after year in this world, because it seems like, is it ever going to get better Is it ever going to get where people are nicer to each other? Or do we just sell more guns? I mean, seems to be the solution, right? If you're unhappy with somebody, well, just unload. And somehow that doesn't seem to create the type of world that God wanted. Faith in Jesus is powerful. Because it means you believe something can happen. That this awful, terrible, ugly world that we have with all of its disagreements and all of its shame that goes on can somehow be fixed. Can somehow be brought back to God. Because it says every single one of us fall short of the glory of God. We are the ones who realize we didn't measure up. We are not righteous, but we are justified by His grace. And that He bore our sins in His body on the cross. And so we are justified by that grace. And we have this gift of redemption where He's paid the Christ on the cross for our sin. And God made him the sacrifice to people of faith who receive him. Not just to everybody. I mean, we all quote John 3.16, God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son to people who will believe in him. And that gets to be a short list, doesn't it? To people who will absolutely believe and trust him and turn their life over to him so that they understand what he's doing in all of this. 
They know exactly what happens. This shows that God is just. He's the one who does both sides. He's the one who justifies and he's also the one who asks for the prize. It's all God's part. And he says he was able to make this all happen with us and for us. First Peter, Peter talks about this as well. He says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal waves inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. I know, blemish or spot. It's odd how many times that happens. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. So God's the one who judges. He's the one who judges impartially. He's the one who judges by, as, as Peter calls it, your deeds here. We know God judges by a lot more than that. He judges by your heart. He judges by your thoughts. He judges by your words. All of those things are part of this because your deeds come out of all of those things. And so he's trying to describe the fact that God is going to be the judge. And it, as he suggests, it really ought to make you afraid. Maybe afraid enough to do better. Isn't that what parents do with kids? You want your kids to be just a little bit afraid, not much. But when they, you know, call all three names, you know it's not going to be a good day. And so you realize, uh uh-oh, there are those times. Now you want God to be loving as well, and He is. But God is also the judge. And then he says, we are redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus, not silver and gold. It's a very high price. It's more than gold could pay for. We're redeemed with the blood of his son. And he gives us the reference to the sacrifice, this perfect lamb of God. And then he says, this isn't a new plan. It isn't that, you know, God made us and we were going along and everything's fine and wonderful. And what? You messed up on one day? Okay, I guess we'll have to do something about it. Not at all. He knew from the very beginning, before he even started all of this, because it's the way he made us. It is not so that we are perfect within ourselves. It's not that we are capable of that kind of perfection and obedience, but so that we might have the relationship of grace with a God who is so much bigger. And that's just one of those things that God knew from the very beginning. He didn't want it by law. He didn't want it because, well, we just never did anything wrong. He wanted it to be by grace. And so he made us with that capability of sin. He made us with the weakness of sin. He also made Jesus as the plan for us being able to come back before the world began. And so we are all believers in God. Our faith and our hope are in Jesus. We realize he is our redeemer. He is the one who is able to save us. And our faith and our hope are in God.
one more passage in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. He says, where the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so it seems like the same thing again, isn't it? Well, good, because I'm telling you the same thing again. This passage and all of these things are all over the New Testament. It is over and over and over that we need to understand this and know this and realize this. And even with all of those scriptures that it talks about, it still baffles us as to why people don't do it. Why does the grace of God have such a hard time getting into the lives of people? Because as he says here, the grace of God is bringing salvation to all people, is teaching us renounce ungodliness and renounce worldly passion and to live your life right, to live self-controlled and upright and godly. And Jesus gave himself to redeem us in order for that to happen because it doesn't just happen on our own. He says he redeems us from lawlessness, from breaking the law from things that we would do that would be against a specific stated directive that said, don't do this. Well, we did it anyway. Or something that we were supposed to do and we said, no, I just just don't want to. You ever have that don't want to? It's like a disease that goes around all the time. You learn it when you're two and it never escapes you. And and so that's what he's describing here is this redeeming us from sin to purify us. Not just the don't want to and not just the breaking of law, but from from the sin that we thought, from the sin that we did, from the way in which we said something, from all of those things that are not what God wants us to be. He says he's redeeming us from all of that as well. Not just the fact that you broke this one command, but... Basically because our heart isn't right. And to purify us to be His people for His own possession. That we would belong to Him. That we would be His. And that we would be zealous for good works. So I think redemption here, as you look through the Scripture, comes in three different places. The first one we probably know most, and that is that Redemption is when you would pay the price to redeem something. And so for us, we have sinned. Jesus died on the cross. He paid the price since the price was blood or death. He died. We no longer need to die. He is the substitution. He is the Passover lamb. He is the one who redeems us so that we are now free from that sin. I'm not sure if the lamb was the substitution for Jesus or Jesus is the substitution for the lamb. It kind of, you can go both ways there. But Jesus came to pay the price so that we are able to be who we need to be. The second one is promise. There's a promise of God given to Abraham. You'll be blessed. All nations will be blessed through you. 
And it's because they were children of Abraham that this promise was given and this great blessing was going to take place. It's an idea of a family obligation, a promise that was held until we're grown to that time. Well, for us, we took a long time to get into the family. And so we're redeemed because now we fit into the family. We're redeemed because we have covenant with God and we have become children of Abraham. So there's another sense of redemption of how we inherit this promise. The third term means to cover. To cover sin or atone for it. Not necessarily just to pay the price for it, but the fact that we're going to use whatever power it takes in order to accomplish it. You see it found in Old Testament especially as God redeems Israel from Pharaoh. Well, he didn't pay the price to Pharaoh. But he did some things like plagues and miracles that were the price for the redemption of Israel to come out of its slavery, out of its captivity to a new promised land. And so it has the idea of of covering and paying the price and being part of the family. So redemption is all of these things as, as what God does in us and what he works in us. It's one of the most amazing things if you ever look at it and realize what it is that God has done. So much more than just a matter of saying, well, don't do that. Well, okay, you did it. Now you have to pay and put a quarter in the jar or whatever it is. Or just, you know, give us two pints of blood. That may slow it down a lot more than the quarter in the jar. Uh, But what about our side? What do we do? Because it's repentance to redemption, right? It's not just God redeems everybody. It's God redeems those who are repentant. God redeems those who have come to God. Well, how do you do that? We ought to know that, right? You say, well, I'm sorry. Okay. Good. We're done, right? Isn't that what repentance is? I said I was sorry. I'm not sure we can talk to God like that. What does that really mean for you? How do you say that? It's a little bit tougher maybe to realize when you start thinking about everybody and everybody's sins and how it all fits. Because sometimes we have complete rebellion and disobedience to God. And in the Scripture, what we get is a list of sins. Don't do these. Ha! There's three of those I didn't even think of doing. Of course, the rest of them are long gone, but uh, sometimes it happens on purpose. We did it and we knew it was wrong and we wanted to do it anyway because we wanted to do it. Repentance means turning around and never doing it again. That one's always kind of tough, isn't it? No, I just want, I want to repent of it for now. I want to still be able to come back to it later when, you know, I want to do it again, but... No, that's not repentance. Repentance is where you decide, I am going to leave it. And I'm not going back there again. I'm not going to become that again. I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to be that way again. And so as you look at what repentance does, it means I want to be a different person. And as I was trying to figure out how to say all this today, 
I finally just wrote it because I don't think I can say it. And so I'm just going to read it to you, what I wrote down. God's creator of everything, of everything good. He made us good, but we didn't stay that way long. We always challenge and test rather than just accept. Before God gives us over, we give ourselves over to sin. Repentance is about being sorry for sin. We are sorry for sin against God. We can't say we didn't intend to do anything wrong. And, well, sometimes that would be true, but we also didn't intend to do everything right. And we questioned and we acted in defiance of God. And there are other crimes by law when we did something wrong against law. And there are other crimes against people where we offended and destroyed them. But those don't matter as much as the crimes against God. So what happens? We're evil, but we're sorry. And we don't want to be this way. So why would we insist on being evil? Well, first is we're not ourselves, whatever that means. We're not normal. We know better. It's not someone else's fault. It's just that we've given ourselves over to evil. The second is we're addicted and we can't control ourselves. Something else has control over us and we've given control to that, to drugs or to drink or to just our own kind of pleasure and somewhere we lost control. We have an excuse. The excuse is we were high or drunk or just kind of out of our mind and we're not in control ourselves, but it really doesn't seem to make it any better. The third one is... We have a need. We felt the need to have it or to do it. We want the fix, but it feels more like a need. It's good for us. We want it. We need it. We think it won't kill us yet. And what doesn't kill you makes you a little more dead. It doesn't make you stronger. Truth is, it's killing us all along. It's not good for us, no matter how good it feels. We don't need it. It's destroying us. We can't fight it or outthink it. There is no logic to fight it. We realize the hopelessness of the situation. It's like we're thrown out, separated from God. We've lost the relationship. And so we set the boundary. We can't go there, draw the line in the sand for ourselves, put a flaming sword in front of it. We can't go back in. We can't get rid of it. So we're just going to have to live with it. We need clarity of vision. We see what we want. It isn't bad. And we can't trust our own instincts. We can't trust our feelings or ourself. We need to see Jesus. 
Jesus has healing. Jesus died on a cross for fools and sinners like us. And still we would see Jesus and Him crucified for us. It is only when we can glimpse the holiness of God and His majesty and His glory. And that comes through Jesus. And so we stop and make a decision. We choose God. We choose Jesus. But He isn't looking very good. He's not the kind teacher anymore. There's no healing. There's only the tears of a loved one. And we see what the soldiers have left. Beaten, suffering, crucified. It wasn't their idea. It was their job. It's where repentance has met redemption. We realize our hands are bloody. And there's the jingle of silver in our pocket. And we remember telling our friends we didn't know him. We aren't really serious about church. It really doesn't mean anything to us. And it doesn't. We don't feel it. We don't feel anything. And we can go to worship and the song's going, but we can't sing. Because we don't feel it. We don't feel anything good. We only feel the unholy. And we know we can never be accepted like that. We realize the emptiness. And there is nothing but noise. And there is that small voice that comes from a man on a cross. And he looked at us and he says, Now... Follow me. It's only when we see all the destruction and realize we're causing it. It's what we did with our disobedience. We're looking at what we are doing to ourself. We see our wounds all over him. And he asks, why are you persecuting me? And we realize we're persecuting us. We didn't know. Did we need it? Did it feel good? Did it control us? Why did we give ourselves over? We don't want control because we don't trust ourselves. Those powerful feelings can come with emotional triggers. And we don't want to go back there. It looks so ugly now. We need to get back to the crowd to give back the silver We don't need it. And we're not left with empty pockets. We see what Jesus would do. We see all those others are lost in themselves, lost in their need, their want to, lost in their addiction, their approval, their acceptance of things that just hurt them. And so when does repentance meet redemption? Maybe these sound familiar It's when we realize we betrayed innocent blood. It's when Jesus turns to look at us as the rooster crows. 
It's when we shout, crucify, crucify him. It's when we hold the hammer in our hand. It's when Jesus asks, why are you persecuting me? It's when Jesus looks at us and asks God to forgive us because we don't know what we're doing. It's our sorrow and his pain. It's our anger and need and his wounds. We thought we needed it, but it only kills us. As we lay there dead, unfeeling, alone, we realize that the good news is Jesus raises the dead. And we are so aware of our death, and the only thing left is to be buried. And so we're buried with Christ in baptism, and we come alive. We have been redeemed. And Jesus comes to walk with us, and He has things for us to do. And we think of our struggle, and He says He has something for us. It's a gift. And the Spirit fills us like a breath. He is faint at first and then more decided and we want Him. And the good news is the Spirit can kill the want and the need in us. We find as we follow Jesus, He fills us. And we don't need anymore. It isn't all about us. It's about what we share with others, what fills us when we share the love and the mercy of God that He has shared with us. It's amazing grace. If this sounds like you this morning, then let us pray with you. It's time. We can explain the redemption and grace of God in all the passages. But it's when repentance meets redemption that the miracle happens. Would you come while we stand and sing?